the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, episode number 14, a roundtable conversation about the one church plan to be presented to General Conference. Hello, this is Bishop David Bard from the Michigan area. You are connecting with the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, doing all the good we can. Welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Hello, my good friend and colleague in ministry. Thank you for joining me, Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, on the United Methodist People podcast, where it is our purpose, we exist, to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church to fulfill the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world through what we're about, which is conversation and commentary. And today we're going to have a great uh, conversation and some comments about, particularly about the One Church Plan, which will be presented to General Conference in 2019. And we all know, if you're involved with the church at all, as I am, as a local church pastor in the Indianapolis, Indiana area, that the uh, General Conference of 2019 will, in many, will likely be a seminal moment for our United Methodist denomination as we approach the matter of human sexuality and the polity of the church. In a very uh, in a very forthright manner, a presentation or a, a report by the bishops has been done. Uh, the commission on the way forward. So uh, that, there will be three reports presented there to the uh, general conference of 2019. There is a traditional plan, one that uh, adheres to the discipline very strictly. There is a conference plan, which has three or four, or maybe as many as five different modes that would be uh, would be. Uh, a part of that plan, and then there's the one church plan, which puts everything under one umbrella with individual churches and choices and clergy be able to make their individual choices about their uh, their own beliefs and their own standards of how to how to do church. It's kind of a complex matter to be sure. And today we have some folks who are advocates of the one church plan, at least a couple of them are, that are part of an event, a special event held at uh, St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, which at which drew uh, a number of people, well over 100 people, to listen to a presentation by Reverend Dr. Mark Holland from MainstreamUMC.com. Uh, he was one of the participants in our roundtable conversation, along with Reverend Jerry Rarden from First United Methodist Church in Noblesville, Indiana, who is organizing Uniting Methodist Indiana, which is an advocacy group for the One Church model, and also Reverend Jill Moffat Howard, pastor at Rosedale Hills United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. She is a delegate, an alternate delegate, to the General Conference, and so she is very involved with this whole process. 
We did want you to know that if you uh, like what you hear here on the United Methodist People podcast, we do have other episodes that you can listen to at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. We have interviewed several bishops, for instance, and other folks who are deeply involved with the church. Good news in the church and dealing with conversations about our concerns in the United Methodist Church. So that's what we're here to do. And there's also a place there where you can get connected to get on our newsletter for the United Methodist People podcast. We have a free gift, a downloadable gift for you there uh, called the Wesleyan Way. And you may uh, enjoy that. And if, you're, if you care to, it would be very helpful to us for you to share the news about the United Methodist podcast in your network, either personally or through your social media, Facebook and so on. Uh, that you can do. And the uh, most, most important thing you can do probably is go over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You just type in United Methodist uh, Pod- United Methodist People Podcast in the search field or, or my name, Brad Muller, and it'll pop up. And subscribe to the podcast and then rate us five stars if you can. And then if you think we deserve it, and a review, just a line or two, that helps other people find us and, of course, pass it on, on in, along in your network. But we are here to strengthen the connection through conversation and commentary. We got a great in-depth conversation with three devoted servants of the church, as I know you are as well, a servant of God for the United Methodist Church. So let's get into our roundtable conversation on the One Church Plan through the United Methodist People podcast. Let's do that right now. Welcome and back to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, where it is our mission to strengthen the connection through conversation and commentary. And that's exactly what we're doing here today as we are having a roundtable conversation around the issue of the way forward in the United Methodist Church. And pleased to have a conversation with three dedicated United Methodist clergy people who are coming together for an event at St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Indianapolis to discuss the way forward and to have some uh, have some conversation around one of the particular uh, approaches to, to the way forward, uh, particularly the, the One Church Plan. But to, today with us we have Reverend Dr. Mark Holland, who's the Executive Director of Main Street UMC, which is a leading advocacy group for the One Church model. And he's an elder in the Great Plains Conference, United Methodist Church. He's been a pastor at the Trinity United Methodist Church, Trinity Community United Methodist Church in Kansas City for about 19 years. He is on a leave of absence at this time to be a work with the, work with Main Street UMC in terms of advocacy for the One Church Plan. We also have Reverend Jerry Rarden with us, senior pastor at First United Methodist Church in Noblesville, Indiana. He's an elder in the Indiana Conference for over 30 years, I believe. And he's the co-founder of Indiana Uniting Methodist. Also with us today is we're pleased to have Reverend Jill Howard, who's the lead pastor at Rosedale Hills United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. She's been appointed there since 2017, has been a pastor in the United Methodist Church under appointment for 10 years. And she is also an alternate delegate to the General Conference, which is coming up in February of 2019. Jill, Jerry, Mark, welcome to United, United Methodist People Podcast. We're glad that you're here. Thank you very much. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you. Glad to be here. Our, our role here to, today is just to have a good conversation about what's going on in the United Methodist Church right now and some of the some of the joys we have but also some of the challenges that, that we have. And so I would just like to ask you each individually, and I want to go around the circle at least initially, what is a joy that you're experiencing or something that is exciting and good about the United Methodist Church 
right right now. Pat, uh, Jerry, I just want to start with you. Let's ask you that question. Well, I'd say the the openness we have to explore new avenues for ministry. I think I sense uh, throughout the denomination a keen interest in trying new alternatives and options. Um, there's awareness that this next generation is becoming a challenging one to reach for all churches, regardless of your denomination. And I see some fresh expressions that are um, pursuing that. So I'm kind of excited to see how that evolves. Awesome. Jill, how about you? What are some things that are exciting to you right now about the United Methodist Church? What's some good stuff? I think the extra attempt to be missional. I see a lot of our congregations getting excited about being outside the church walls, and I think that's a big shift that we've seen in the past five or ten years. And trying to reach um, young people, but also people who are are different than our churches might be, reaching out to refugee populations, um, different different parts of our communities that are in need, that kind of thing. Uh, also, I see excitement around um, people wanting to hear a biblical message that is also relevant to today. I think that's getting people excited about Jesus Christ again. That's awesome. Mark, I want to ask you the same question. What's exciting to you right now about the United Methodist Church? Well, if we come very immediate, I mean, I think there's a real um, conversation going on in the United Methodist Church about what really matters. And I think talking about the missional importance of the church, the global nature of the church, um, there's a lot of folks in the pews who have not all been tuned in for a variety of reasons to what goes on globally with the United Methodist Church and all the exciting ministries we have around the country. Um, And it really depends church by church how tuned in people are to that. Um, But I think there's a growing awareness in this season of the church right now that there's a lot at stake and really uh, a recognition of how important the ministries we have are and how we can continue to work those um, work work out our current issues so that we can continue to do the great ministry that we're doing. Well, Mark, you mentioned the season that we're in right now, that there are some opportunities there for some good things to happen, but we live at a time when there's a lot of things happening. So what's, I just kind of opened this up, this question here, what are some of the things about the season we find in our, in our church right now that's breaking your heart? This is kind of a real heaviness, a real concern there. I just want to put that out to anyone who wants to share on that one. Well, for me, the potential of a breakup is significant mm-hmm. and I think the people I've been in covenant with on all sides and all political persuasions and all theological persuasions that we've lived together and worked together, loved together and done many years of wonderful ministry to think that we might not be in the same church um, come the next couple of years is really disturbing to me. So I'm looking forward to finding some way that we can keep the church together as best as we can. And that's uh, part of the reason why we're here, to have a conversation around that. Mm-hmm. Julie, do you have any thoughts about what's kind of breaking your heart these days about what's going on in the church? I think a lot of the divisiveness, and I even want to say hatred, mm. around this, this topic. Tough and, but true. Yes, and um, a lot of the misinformation that's out there as well. People are jumping to conclusions or assumptions that are simply not true and not taking the time to listen to one another and understand Uh, one another's point of view, someone's point of view that might be different from our own. And also, I I feel a lot of heartbreak that I feel like a lot of our United Methodist uh, members are struggling with the fair interpretation of the Bible. Um, I'm finding that more and more we are not using the Bible in healthy 
well-rounded ways. And I think that that's really caused a lot of that divisiveness that we feel around this very topic. So part of what you're hearing you say is there are just some real fundamental misunderstandings of how we approach church life, theology, biblical interpretation, and and that's tough to overcome sometimes. Yeah, so. And I'll also add that it's heartbreaking to me that we have forgotten the main thing. Mm-hmm. We've been fo- so focused on this that we've missed opportunities like we shared before about being missional or fresh expressions or... Mm-hmm what it means to love one another because we're busy fighting over this. Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit about, you know, already about the, that there is an issue before us and that, you know, the main, keeping the main thing the main thing you mentioned there, Jill. But let's just talk for a minute about what the racial, the issues really are at hand. And so, Mark, I'd just like to invite you, maybe in the context of what's breaking your heart, what's caused you to cause to take some really significant actions in your life and ministry, where do we stand right now, as you understand, our United Methodist Church, as we stand here in the fall of 2018? Well, I think there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, the church caving into culture. And I think the biggest caving into culture we have is we're certainly reflecting the really bitter political divide that we have nationally right now. Um, and actually, the last time the United Methodist Church split, the Methodist Episcopal Church split, um, was when the nation was ready to go to civil war over the issue of slavery. And so... We have a a time, certainly in my lifetime, I've never experienced the political environment in our country quite so divisive. Um, Even talking to my parents who were um, kind of shaggy in the 60s, um, don't remember even the political environment then being quite so divisive as it is now. So it feels like that the the church is reflecting the divisiveness of our nation um, in a really critical time. And so the face of the issue um, right now is human sexuality. But I think the body of the issues are, are deeper than that. And so that breaks my heart to see the, the church really um, following the lead of the bitterness in our, in our larger culture. Um, because at the end of the day, when there's a hurricane in the Carolinas, nobody really cares who's bringing the buckets of food and who's bringing the cleaning supplies and who's doing the work. Um, you know, UMCOR is powerful because all of us are in it together. Um, I look at the global ministries in Africa and the Philippines and Europe and all the great work we're doing around the world. Um, we just wouldn't be able to do those kind of work um, separately that we're able to do together. So I think my uh, heartbreak right now is just that um, some folks are ready to put all of that on the line and, in fact, willing to submit petitions to dissolve the denomination um, if they don't get the plan passed that they want um, in order to... Um, just finished 250 years of Methodism mm-hmm. um, over a over a divide right now. So my hope is is that, um, and I do have great hope, by the way. It's heartbreaking where we are, but I do have great hope that the um, center of the church will hold, and we will see that um, this um, probably is not the issue that we should divide. Methodism. So the connection is threatened, and, and the power, the good that the connection provides, is at stake. I think and, so. And, and what we're talking about here, um, core just being one example about how we come through as a connection. All of our United Methodist churches worldwide doing some some good, and how if we have division, if we have schism, or even d- dissolution, as you mentioned, all that could go away. I think one thing I'd want to add to that, this is Jerry speaking, I'm worried about losing the next generation. 
because this is an issue the next generation has already decided how they feel about it. I've got four kids myself, and I can tell you that if we adopt the plan that the traditional plan is, the kind of church that the traditional plan is proposing, they'll never be a part of that church. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree. It, that really worries me. So I think it's, it's not just currently the good that we're doing, it's the future of what we can do is, is at stake as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we say that our mission as a, as a church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And so we're talking transforming the world of people like your kids and my kids and my grandchildren. Uh, that puts it at question, I believe. There is some, some concern there. And many of our churches are suffering right now, even the way it is, you know, with a loss of attendance and weakness, especially in North America at least. Um, but I would like to come back a little bit just to get just a little bit more foundation. And Mark, I'd like you to speak to this if you would. Right before us right now, just the situation church right now, is we have a general conference coming up in February of 2019. And there's before us three plans that we basically are dealing with. And just for context for our listeners, would you just help give us a kind of a synopsis as you understand the three plans? And then we'll talk a little bit why some of us here are advocates of one plan over another. So I'm glad to. So as most of us know that in 2016, the General Conference voted to ask the bishops to come up with a plan to lead us forward. We were locked up again um, at General Conference, and the bishops agreed um, to accept that leadership. That motion at the General Conference, out of 860 votes, passed by 23 votes. So there was not a huge consensus to ask the bishops to lead. They brought their plan back, and their plan actually passed by that same margin, about 23 votes. Their plan was to convene a group called the Commission on the Way Forward uh, for 18 months. They did their work, and then they passed their plan on to the Council of Bishops. And then the bishops um, approved that plan, and it is being submitted to the first to the Judicial Council, um, which will be later this month in October of 2018, and then it will go on to the General Conference in February. Uh, The Commission decided early on that they were not going to do a progressive plan or a what's called a traditional plan. They're only going to do plans that held the church together. And so they came up with two plans. They came up with the Connectional Conference Plan, um, and they came up with the One Church Plan. Uh, the Connectional Conference Plan, I think they say in the, in the, in the South, bless its heart, um, mm-hmm. it needs eight constitutional amendments to pass. And since we're having a hard time getting a majority um, at the General Conference, I've not met anyone optimistic enough that a two-thirds majority is out there for the Connectional Conference Plan. Um, because the Connectional Conference Plan still holds um, that we would be doing different kinds of ministry under the same name. Um, so that's one plan that they came up with. The other plan was the One Church Plan. And the One Church Plan is a model um, that allows um, churches to be who they are. Conservative churches get to be conservative. Progressive churches get to be progressive. Um, conservative pastors get to be conservative. Progressive pastors get to be progressive. And the same with the annual conferences. And the question is not really a question about homosexuality. The question, in my mind, is are we willing to live with people who fundamentally disagree? And that's what the One Church Plan offers us, is an opportunity to stay in ministry together knowing that we disagree with one another. So Christian tolerance is a real key issue here. It is. And I don't remember anywhere Jesus saying, tolerate your neighbors. Um, Jesus said, love your neighbors. And I think love is a higher standard that we have as Christians. Um, So I don't even want to tolerate people who disagree with me. I want to love them, um, particularly in our own church. 
though there are some who believe that um, they cannot be in the same church with people who disagree with them on this issue. Now, those two plans were sent by the Commission on the Way Forward to the Council of Bishops. The Council of Bishops approved them uh, by nearly, approved the one church plan by nearly a two-thirds vote of all the global active bishops. Um, A handful of conservative bishops, very conservative bishops, did not like that, and they drafted the traditional plan that the commission had already rejected and put it back to the commission to include in the report. The report says very clearly, they put it in Appendix 3, and it says very clearly this is not the work of the commission. This is the work of a few bishops, uh, a few bishops who did not sign the document. Um, So we don't know what bishops wrote it, and the plan that calls for the highest accountability is not willing to be accountable for the authors. So I think that's troubling in its own right. But it's put back into the appendix and not part of the commission's full report. The only thing the commission worked on is how to keep the church together. And the most notable piece of the traditional plan is that it has an exit plan. And it is seven of the 22 pages are dedicated to how to get out of the church. And another six are how to penalize people who try to stay in the church if they don't agree. So it's a very punitive plan. It doesn't feel graceful like the United Methodist Church I've grown up in. Um, and it has a, a lot of access either and the people who have produced it have said if we don't, if it doesn't pass we're leaving the church but the plan says if it does pass people who disagree are leaving the church and so it is a plan that is calling for schism both on the front end and the back end um, which is very different from what the bishops approved and very different from what the commission on the way forward approved and I believe very different from what the general conference asked the bishops to do mm-hmm. so that's, a, that's kind of a, a brief summary of the, of the three plans. And, of course, the issue for many folks is the biblical issue and interpretation of what the Bible says on issues of homosexuality and other things here that we have before us because some people are saying that, you know, we cannot be a part of a church that doesn't believe the way I believe biblically. How do any of us, I want to just throw this out to the four of us here, how do many of us deal with some of the challenging parts biblically that are before us in terms of how do we uh, you know, understand this issue of grace and this issue of God's love, tolerance, if you will, as opposed to some of the troubling passages in the Bible that are at the heart of the matter here. Well, I can speak as a young clergy woman <laughs> and say that I think that if we, we can't find ways to believe that God is bigger than the words on the page, then we're in trouble. Um, we, we ordain women in the United Methodist Church. We have split over slavery. Uh, we don't see divorce necessarily an issue where people are asked to leave or we condemn people who are divorced. And yet we are focusing on, on texts that are written at a certain place at a certain time for a certain reason. And we have, have really hit those hard in a way where we're using the Bible as a weapon. I think that that's what we need to try to overcome and, and realize that there is room for interpretation in many directions where we see uh, God's grace having the, the final say over those difficult texts. Because I wouldn't be standing here today if generations before me didn't wrestle with the same kind of scriptures that we're talking about now around human sexuality. Indeed, and if we just want to talk about inerrancy of Scripture and so on, there are just a lot of troubling things, particularly in the Old Testament, of mm-hmm. you know murder and mayhem and all kinds of terrible things that have gone on there that need to be uh, dealt with. 
Let's talk for a second about where at least uh, some of us in this conversation uh, see or advocate the One Church Plan. What do you see? For instance, Jerry, I know you've created a group in the state of Indiana, and it's uh, it's called the Indiana United Methodist. Is that correct? Did I get that right? We refer to it. United Methodist Indiana. United Methodist Indiana. It's a little more hip, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is much hipper. Awesome. Yeah. My awesome. communication specialist came up with that. So. Yeah. I want you to speak to that for a second. What motivated you to do that? What are you looking to accomplish? And we get to what Mark's working on in his group as well. Well, I felt moved by God when I came out of our annual conference. Um, I was just disturbed how politicized it seemed to be, and that those who were organized were just reflecting one perspective. And I thought, if we don't stand up, uh, this is the way it's going to be. And I thought, I've got to try. I've got to, I've got to try something. And I prayed about it, thought it through, and um, had already signed on with the United Methodist Movement and thought, we need to do something that, that's our local expression and do what we can to impact our delegates and and that's when we came across with the work of Reverend Mark Holland and thought that he offers the best chance that I see of tackling this and, and understanding the political ramifications to influence the vote. And so that's, that's the work we're trying to be about right now. And it's, it is an advocate for the One Church plan that, we've, that uh, Mark has unpacked a little bit here. So, Mark, I know that uh, tell us what about the organization that you're with, what motivated that, and what are you seeking to accomplish well, I think very similar to Jerry. I mean, I think um, looking at the, even as a delegate at the General Conference in 2016, um, I've been to uh, five General Conferences, either as an alternate or a delegate since 2000, and it just looked like we were headed towards the plate shattering on the floor. And um, I was able to make the motion to ask the bishops to lead, um, which, as I mentioned, you know, barely passed by 23 votes at the general conference and so just that concern and now looking at the vote coming up in February the work that the commission on the way forward there's never been a better vetted plan in the United Methodist Church with the two years of process of really looking at how we can how we can work together um, even across interpretation issues of the scriptures Um, and so as we looked at it also felt like there are four groups that are very well organized the Wesleyan Covenant Association, the Good News uh, Movement, the Confessing Movement, and the Institute for Religion and Democracy are all long-standing advocacy groups in the United Methodist Church who tout on their websites 27 staff members and all have committed to defeating the One Church Plan. Um, and the WCA has certainly said they're leaving if they don't, if that doesn't happen, if the traditional plan doesn't happen. And so looking at the political environment, and to paraphrase our Lord, where two or more are gathered, there will be politics also. Of course, of course. Uh, and so the the political nature of our uh, we have a, a legislative process, and there needs to be 433 votes to pass any plan, and we need to um, work on getting the messaging out. My biggest concern was if you have four organizations spending millions of dollars with 27 staff members to tell one side of the story, there needed to be boots on the grounds telling the telling the other side of the story and giving people a reason for hope that we can live together, um, just like our families do. I mean, I don't know what your Thanksgiving table looks like, but I know what mine does. Complex. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a deal. And, but we love each other, and we care for each other. And we, don't, um, we know where we agree and disagree, and we 
and we and we care for each other and our families. And I think we deserve a denomination that does the same thing our families do. And I would say we do the same thing at our local churches. I've never been in a local church, and I've been a pastor for 24 years that didn't have people um, who fundamentally disagree on this issue, and yet worship together, sing in the choir together, lead worship together, serve at the food pantry together, go on mission trips together, raise their kids together. Um, and again, I believe our denomination needs to model the same kind of acceptance and love um, that our local churches do. And that's what motivated me to work on Mainstream UMC. So uh, Reverend Annette Roberts at Olathe Grace United Methodist Church, she and I co-founded Mainstream um, to do that, to organize, fund, and staff a global campaign to pass the One Church Plan. And that's been our, that's been our mission statement. And what you are looking to do is be influential upon delegates at the General Conference. Is that a part of what you're about? Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, there's really we really have a couple of goals. One is to um, have 433 votes. That's the number for a majority win. Now, I will say a majority win as a pastor is not all that exciting. Um, I would not lead a capital campaign at my church with a 51% majority. I would back up and do more process. Um, I want consensus at the church. Um, ideally, we would have we would be able to find a consensus at this general conference. Um, but consensus starts with majority, and the majority is 433. Mm-hmm. The other piece is contingency plans. I mean, there are at least three possible outcomes at general conference. One is the one church plan really can pass. There's a lot of support for it, and there's a good potential that it could pass. Um, there will be fallout if it passes, and we need contingency planning for that. Um, it is conceivable that the traditional plan could pass, and I think even more conceivable if no one's working for the one church plan. Um, should that pass, there will be fallout. Um, it's written into the plan of how that fallout will happen, but there will be fallout. Um, and then the third option is maybe nothing passes. And I don't know about you, but I've sat in that church meeting before um, where nothing happens. And that would be, um, uh, that would be a whole other scenario where we need contingency plans. And we need to think about those outcomes because coming out of February, we have four months before the next uh, annual conference sessions in the United States where we will elect delegates again to 2020 and we will set petitions to go to 2020. We need to have that book of work happening before we get to annual conferences. Um, I like to say the best thing about general conferences only happens every four years. Uh, we could do it back-to-back <laughs> years with this special session. Yeah, and essentially so, that would be the case, wouldn't it? That's right. We're 19 back, and 20. We're yes. going back-to-back. So the idea that um, we can't just focus entirely on the outcome in 2019, we also have to be looking ahead and building the coalitions of people who want to be united for the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world and to have uh, contingency plans for the variety of possible outcomes at General Conference. Appreciate that. One of the reasons I wanted to get your comments, uh, Mark and Jerry, before I turn to Jill is because Jill is is a, a delegate, an alternate delegate to the General Conference. So, Jill, I'd just like for you to reflect with us, if you will, about... What are you listening to? What kind of influences or plan are you at, in terms of uh, of your vote, your potential vote here? Uh, are, is, are you getting a lot of information from various sources? Tell us about what you are experiencing right now as a uh, as a delegate to General Conference. Well, it's interesting that I am the first reserve or alternate delegate because I'm in a strange situation where I am part of the team, I attend the meetings, and yet it's... Um, 
up in the air or even unlikely that I'll actually be able to be on the floor having a vote. So I have... But yet you got to be prepared, don't you? Correct. Yes. But I'm in a position of really, first of all, praying for the delegation, praying over the delegation, um, listening, and really trying to get kind of a balcony view of where we are as a delegation. And I feel like the mood in the room is is serious and at times sad and at times hopeful and at times feeling like we are coming from all different perspectives and places and yet trying to work together to at least talk with each other. And I think that's been something we've been working on. Uh, as we are going through this process, I think the most communication we get is honestly from people within Indiana who want to voice their opinion. So we have a delegation email that anyone can send us an email and it goes to each one of us. And we've had, we've had a pretty fair amount of people who are all over the spectrum. Some are just asking us questions. But some you, you say like local, you mean like local church folks yes. or other clergy or this type of thing. I would say it's mostly local church lay people, okay. uh, some clergy as well. Okay, and we've pretty much seen all all the arguments before. Um, nothing too new, but we see kind of a, I think, an uptick in, in people who are just really passionate about. I want you to hear my perspective, and I hope you'll take it to heart and. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're praying for you, <laughs> which is great. Um, I, I don't know if at this point any of the delegates are being necessarily swayed anyway. I would hope we are all in prayer and deep discernment. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what it would take for the delegation or anyone on it to do a 180 at this point. However, I do pray daily that each of our delegates has an open heart to, to hear mm-hmm. the voices that we are hearing. What's touched you? You mentioned emails and phone calls and so on. Has there been anything, any particular story or any particular situation, either through that means or some other, that has touched you in this process, that's moved your heart? As a delegate or through the questions people have asked? Or? Either. Just how this has um, impacted you. you. You're in the middle of all yeah. this, is what I'm getting at. You're in the middle of the, of the, you know, yeah. of the of this situation here. Mm-hmm. I just want to know what's touching your heart, Jill. Mm-hmm. What's touching my heart is that... I really do feel like the delegation is in deep discernment and prayer. I really do. And even so it's though, a spiritual experience. Yeah, even though we all come from different understandings and, and we don't all agree, I think that that sense of the Spirit is there. And as far as the voices we're hearing, uh, the most influential on me has been those who are really writing their personal story. Uh, one email we got was from a um, United Methodist woman who at one point was a clergy person and had to surrender her credentials to marry her her longtime partner. And to hear those heartbreaking stories of, I was baptized into this church, and yet because of my orientation, I'm not accepted as anything other than a baptized layperson. I think for a lot of us, even those who may not, not agree, um, that is that is heart wrenching to hear that someone anyone feels rejected by their their church they've grown up in. So for me, that's been the most touching is when we receive an email from someone with with sharing a personal experience of their life that is has to do with this whole thing and and for a church to vote one way or not one way would really affect their spiritual life and their journey with God sure. and with the church. And of course, the local church 
is all about life experiences, mm -hmm. one with another in the community of, of the church, with our spiritual experiences. And of course, what we when we talk about these changes that will take place, one way or another, we're going to come out differently in February of uh, 19. But we're talking about these personal experiences and really what our church is about is to be transformational. I'm interested now in how your opinions of, of us here is how we are going to be changed as a church and personally and as congregations. Uh, what do you think is going to be happening here in the sense of, for instance, how can the church uh, enter into this time when we have distinct differences, profound differences, and still be loving and caring and graceful and perhaps even be an example to our political world right now? Let's talk about that in a minute. How can we enter into conflict gracefully? Well, part of my mission, part of the reason that I'm so much behind the One Church plan, is to be a witness to our world. Because mm -hmm. uh, you can see how divided we are on everything, it seems like. And I wonder what it says to the world. If we end up splitting over this issue, anybody who's outside the church, anybody who... Uh, has a very skeptical view of religion, this is just going to confirm what's different about the church or any church because it's no different than the political world that I live in. Mm -hmm. And if somehow we can find a way to negotiate through this as lovingly as possible, it's a chance to be a witness to our world. So I, I just hope we keep talking and we emphasize our relationships. I plan to have some conversations with delegates that I've had long-time relationships mm -hmm. with and just say, hey, you're my brother and sister. I... I hope somehow we find a way through this because I still want to see you that way afterwards, mm -hmm. regardless of how the vote goes. The tragedy would be multiplied if we come out at a real point of not only mm -hmm. separation, but, you know, animosity. Yeah. You know, this is Mark speaking. I think one of the one of the things I love about the United Methodist Church, it is one of the last big tent churches in the United States that really... Um, represents the broad spectrum of people um, in the United States and across and around the world. And so I think that the I value that. I think the church is a better church. I don't want to be in a liberal church or a conservative church. I want to be in a church that has um, the full dynamic because I learn so much from my brothers and sisters who read scripture differently, who practice ministry differently, who practice the faith differently. Boy, losing that seems like a major loss. Third generation United Methodist pastor, and notably in three different denominational structures. You know, my great-grandfather was Methodist Episcopal South. My dad was Methodist Episcopal, and I um, was born into the United Methodist Church. So we have the denominational structures ebb and flow, obviously. Um, but the split that is being talked about now um, would be the largest since before the Civil War. And my question is, if this is the issue over which we split... What's the next issue? Yeah. And if we are so susceptible to splitting along political lines over an interpretation of Scripture, and the way I describe the interpretation of Scripture is I believe the Bible is true. I believe much of it is descriptive truth and much of it is prescriptive truth. And in terms of the issue on homosexuality, um, we're not going to convince, we're not going to change people's mind on how you see that, whether it's descriptive or prescriptive. What we do hope to change people's mind on is that we can live together. And that's really the piece, because if we're going to split over this, we disagree on interpretation of Scripture around 
immigration, around women in ministry, around you can go through the list of issues. Um, and I think that the only way to be in a church that entirely agrees with you is to be in a very small church. Um, and that's just not the kind of ministry I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a big tent um, church where we can have lively, God-centered conversations about how to best be the witness in the world. We are a connectional church. That means we are also, when we are at our best, we are connecting the diverse parts of the church to have a more lively, alive, vibrant uh, body of Christ that is not, you know, uh, monochrome. It is a codochrome. It is multicolored and multifaceted. And yet we see this uh, situation we are in right now. Hmm. I'm just curious now. I just want to get your thoughts. How do you think it's going to play out? I mean, this is just kind of a matter of opinion now. I get it. I get it. We we can't be predictive totally, but we can go by, you know, the, the scriptures, uh, the scriptures, the scriptures talk about leadings, right? What's leading you right now? What do you th- how do you think this is going to play out in terms of what's going to be happening at the general conference and how we're going to come out the other side? Well, unlike our sports games, we don't have Vegas giving us an over-under. Mm. So, and, of course, the United Methodist Church does not support gambling, though we are a big tent and do support people who do in moderation. I, um, I, don't, I don't know the outcome. I believe there's a lot of momentum for the One Church Plan. Um, I think there's a lot of momentum in this country, in the U.S., um, around the opportunity of maintaining our global witness, and I think there's a lot of momentum internationally. I know two of the three bishops in the Philippines um, have come out publicly for the One Church Plan, recognizing the value of the connection. Um, you know, West Europe splits East-West, similar to how the U.S. splits North-South, and Western Europe is much more aligned with Northern parts of the United States, and Eastern Europe is more aligned, um, and they're thinking on this issue with the Southern part of the United States. But there's support in Europe, and even in Africa, while I would say Africa pretty unanimously um, is not supportive of the issue of homosexuality. And in part, many of our churches are in countries where homosexuality is illegal and in some places punishable by death. So it's literally a life and death issue. It's literally a life and death issue. You should deal with that instead. That's right. So that's, that's, and we can bear great witness to that. But I also think that the one church plan does not affect the international church. Um, The international church can continue to do ministry in the way that it is. Um, We have a piece in the discipline that allows for um, the, inter- the central conferences to adapt the Book of Discipline to their ministry setting, to their mission field. That permission is not reciprocated to the United States. We cannot vote on changes in their practice, but they can vote on changes in our practice. That's a complex, problematic issue um, on a lot of levels. But that's kind of built into the One Church Plan. Isn't it, it is built into the One Church Plan that this can that this allows the churches that allows the church to serve its mission field. There are mission fields that are literally dying to be able to witness again lesbian people. And there are mission fields that, that say that their mission field would be totally opposed to reaching out to gay lesbian people. There is good biblical foundation in the book of Acts around the Jerusalem conference for different practice, different interpretation of scripture and tradition uh, based on mission field, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than all of these issues. So I think there's a lot of momentum. I think the One Church Plan has a very solid chance of passing uh, but we need to keep working on it. The traditional plan, I think the only way the traditional plan passes, because I don't think, well, the majority of the U.S., by polls and other things, are supportive of um, supporting gay and lesbian people. And in fact, if this vote were taken 
just with U.S. delegates, it would have passed probably 12 years ago. Similar to the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, UCC, Episcopalians have all taken this same step based on the U.S. mission field. Um, and even the good news on their website will tell you the only reason the United Methodist Church has not taken that step is because of the international witness. So the U.S. Church is, is, has a strong majority for this. Um, and there's a growing understanding and a growing interest in the, even in the global church of saying, you know, is this a thing we have to divide on? Or is our global witness more powerful? So I think it has a chance. The only way I think the traditional plan passes is if all the international delegates line up with the traditionalists in the U.S. That's already not happening. And so I think it's, I think either the one church plan will pass or nothing will pass. I would just like to get a feel from all of us here now, particularly uh, uh, Jill and Jerry, about what are the implications for the church moving forward, particularly these young people. You know, we say our church is all about making disciples of Jesus Christ with the transformation of the world. And sometimes I question how well we are accomplishing our mission. What are the implications of whatever decision we make for accomplishing our mission, particularly in light of the audience of folks we're talking about, younger people? Joe, can you speak to that for a second? Well, I am a local church pastor, so I feel like the implications of any plan, if one should pass, would be there's going to be a huge shift. There will be people that are ready to walk out the door. There are people who are unsure. There are people who are going to want to be in conversation and those who do not. So I feel like as clergy, we have to be prepared to do some pastoral care and walking through whatever is ahead. And then it's like there needs to be a period of um, discernment and sitting with the decision that's made and then talking about how we're going to move forward. Um, my congregation is in the midst of doing some visioning, and we're excited. So ministry is still happening, but I think either way, an implication will be to stop briefly and say, here's what's happening, how does that affect us, and then how are we going to move on from here? So I, I too, worry about young people. I feel like... Um, I feel like many of our, our churches in Indiana, smaller churches, might be on the edge of, of maybe exiting if something were changed or something like the One Church Plan would pass. And yet um, our young people are all looking at, at their church going, I don't, I don't want to be a part of a church that is going to exclude my best friend um, mm. for this or, or clergy coming in as well who are saying, I don't want to be a part of a denomination that's discriminatory or exclusion, excluding people. So those are the implications that we're looking at as far as a shift yeah. happening. Either way, someone's going to be unhappy. Nobody's going to be happy. We have to figure out how, again, the question of how to live together and do ministry together in the midst of disagreement. Yeah. Jerry, how about you? I speak to the same question. Implications of whatever decision we make to the church moving forward. Let me speak to my local situation. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I'd say in Noblesville. Because that has a, you know, that's a kind of reflection of what happens in broader church, I believe. Mm-hmm. In Noblesville, I've had some conversations with the previous pastor that was there for 14 years because he has a better handle on that than I do right now in my fourth year. Uh, and he thinks the vast majority don't care about this issue. They just want to keep doing what they want to be doing and they live and let live and be fine. Whichever way we go, I'll probably lose some people on each side. One way or the other. 
I, th I think that's probably. I I've already lost a few. I think that's a pretty fair talking. assessment of how the church is going. You know, uh, for me as a pastor, I, I'm just hoping for the one church plan because we have so many wonderful things in place. We've started an organic farm. Um, we're reaching out to the community in ways that we've never done before. We've got an incredible reputation in communities as being that church that is mm -hmm. is out there doing things. And I just hate to see that momentum slowed right. by, yeah. by that. And yeah. I, I think that's what will happen. And that's the, the fear we have, I'll speak for myself here, is that something can happen here that could really just harm the connection. Not, I'm not even talking denominationally now, but the connection we make evangelistically mm -hmm. and missionally. But it's one more thing I want you to, I'm going to ask, invite the, all of us to, to speak to here. And this is, I, we start our conversation, what kind of excites you about the United Methodist Church and where are you at right now about it? Let's just talk for a minute about what you feel are signs of hope moving forward. What can we look forward to, particularly if we are having some connection or conversation with people just coming into the church, whether it's clergy people or, or uh, lay people who are connecting, considering a connection to Christ through the United Methodist Church. What are some signs of hope moving forward? Mark? Well, you know, I would tie this into the last question about the implications. I mean, I have yes, a lot more hope with the one church plan than I do with the traditional plan. The traditional plan passes every annual conference in the connection within one year must certify um, about what their where their position is on this or begin the process of leaving the denomination. So this discussion at annual conference is going to come front and center to every annual conference within the next year after this vote. Um, now, the annual conference does not have to certify that they believe Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. They only have to certify um, about where they stand on homosexuality. Um, every bishop has to certify. Every member of the Board of Ordained Ministry has to certify. Again, not about issues of faith, but about issues of homosexuality. So I have this, con the traditional plan pushes this conversation down into the annual conferences um, and the clergy immediately. That's, I have much more hope with the One Church Plan. For the One Church Plan, 95% of our churches, it's not even going to be a blip on the radar screen. Um, rural Kansas and Nebraska and the Great Plains where we are, you know, we have a 1,000 churches in the Great Plains. Um, and for the vast majority of churches, the default is that, and it requires no vote. The traditional plan passes, the conferences don't have to do anything, and the default is there's no gay weddings at the churches. Um, if a church wants to do a gay wedding, then they can vote to do so. Well, I'm just telling you, 95% of the churches in Kansas and Nebraska, no gay people are asking to get married there. So there's no, there's nobody's, it's not even going to come up. But the churches for whom that's important are going to take that action. And so the one church plan, I'm very hopeful. It allows for the status quo, and that's one of the reasons some people don't like it, is it allows for the status quo. Conservative churches continue to be conservative. Progressive churches still get to be progressive. The same with the conferences and their built-in protections for people of conscience, both churches and pastors and bishops, um, if they're in a setting that is not the same as their view. That gives me a lot of hope that the church can keep being the church. Absolutely. So I have a lot of hope that all the churches that are planning their school outreach, that are planning their neighborhood group outreach, that are doing all of these great ministries to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformational world will continue unimpeded with the One Church Plan. Awesome statement. Thank you, Martin. Jill, signs of hope? Signs of hope, I think, come in the form of um, conversations that are loving and um, come from a place of respect. Um, I know that 
the commission read the anatomy of peace as well as our our delegation and that's a good groundwork for us to say in our divided culture we're in right now politically as well to say remember that person that you're disagreeing with is also a human being and and to really get a chance to sit down with that person and talk to them in a way that's not over social media or in an attacking manner but really trying to get as the book calls it a heart of peace so i have seen many people try to have and have succeeded in having a heart of peace around any difficult topic any divisive topic and so that gives me hope um that in the midst of all the the divisive the divisive stuff we have and and even in times the hatred i have seen from all sides where people are willing with enough prayer and um peaceful mindedness to sit down with each other and love one another and continue to do ministry together So that's signs of hope to me is is our safe space to have those conversations where each person leaves feeling like they're still friends that they love and respect one another and that churches are continuing their ministries doing visioning um celebrating a baptism or a profession of faith um those are still happening and so to continue on yeah. with what we're doing and life keeping, happens church happens that's right yeah. keeping Christ at the center Jerry signs of hope I'd say that God's calling people like Reverend Dr. Mark Holland. Um I felt God pulled on my heart to do something and it felt so vague and knowing that trying to influence our Indiana delegation has a limited return on it and to find out that there was God had called somebody that has the political expertise that Mark has as well as the calling and passion uh gives me a chance to impact the rest of the delegation that's going to come and vote on that. So Uh, to help impact the the global delegation, and that that's an opportunity. Uh, so Absolutely. that's a sign of hope for me. Well, part of the sign of hope for me, publisher of the United Methodist People podcast, is that having conversations matter. Mm-hmm. Commenting on these issues matter. Being engaged matter, and being under the umbrella of God's of God's grace and our Wesleyan thinking prevenient grace. Understand that God's still God, and that God loves us even when we mess up. God loves our neighbor when we think they're messing up and that uh, we can still be a church moving forward if we choose to and it's my hope and prayer that we will choose to continue to be a, a voice for of hope to the the lives of these people out there not just us but uh, there's a lot of folks out there who the church has the opportunity to make an impact on and I certainly believe Wesleyan theology and thinking has the best opportunity to do just that and it's my hope that through conversation and commentary and just focusing on God's grace that we can continue to be a voice that continues to help uh, transform people uh, transform the lives of people right so I want to thank our guest here today on the panel uh, Reverend Joe Howard from the Rosedale Hills United Methodist Church in Indianapolis Reverend Jerry Rarden senior pastor for United Methodist Church in Noblesville who's co-founder of Indiana United Methodist Indiana And Reverend Dr. Mark Holland, the executive director of Mainstream UMC, an advocacy group for the One Church Plan, and we'll put connections to all these folks notes on United Methodist People podcast. I think my friend and colleague, you'll join me in affirming that was an awesome conversation that I was able to participate in with uh with Joe Moffat Howard pastor Joe Moffat Howard from Indianapolis. Uh, Reverend Jerry Rarden from Noblesville, Indiana, 
uh, with United Methodist Indiana and Reverend Dr. Mark Holland from Kansas City, Kansas with MainstreamUMC.com. We'll put connections to all to those folks uh, in the show notes as well. Let me just reflect with you just a couple thoughts that I had be, before we uh, let you go here today in the United Methodist People podcast. I hope you heard in the conversation that we had kind of the combination of, of heartbreak and hope. Heartbreak that our church is facing some really difficult times over the matter of human sexuality and over and how this is called, you know, people to take sides and some agitation and animosity and some real difficult things or difficult um, heartbreaking uh, conversations, even those that may lead to schism and some even advocating dissolution of our, of our church. But I also hope that you heard hope and joy about what we do in our United Methodist Church. All these uh, folks shared about how we are a missional church and we're doing things that really matter in the world and we're reaching out and we are a big tent church, one of, one of the last, according to Mark, where we have an opportunity to have great diversity in our church and that is a, a powerful thing. And we have important institutions in our church, like UMCOR, for instance, that uh, where we all come together, regardless of our understanding, theologically, biblical, interpretation, all kinds of things, we all come together to help with a hurricane, for instance. These things happen. I also hope that you heard what was mentioned a couple of times, that our next generations are, are at stake, that many folks, especially younger folks, have already made up their minds about what they feel about uh, matters that we're fighting over in the church right now, including those about human sexuality, and that if we don't get it together in our church, that we... Uh, we run a real high risk of, uh, of, of excluding not only folks who are uh, mentioned and directly in our conversations about human sexuality, but many other people, too, who have other uh, concepts and thinking about how they do life. We know that in many cases our United Methodist Church is in declining in attendance and influence, and that's just the reality in North America. And this is one concern that was raised by our panel here today. It's the belief that from this panel, for the most part, that the one church plan helps the church to continue to uh, fulfill our mission to serve or to serve our world and is uh, the best way to go in terms of that. And that, uh, that, there, that the diversity is a is a positive and that we can maintain a global witness and there is value in the connection there was a lot of conversation about uh, the church the diversity of church and lots of pressures from those who are advocates of the of the traditional plan for instance and uh, some of the dynamic intention between the african church and the united methodist church and other parts of the world that's part of our conversation and it, it's part of the complexity of this matter that i invite you to get on the websites uh, get in on umc.org and other places and explore this matter for yourself. And let's, let's be involved with conversation and commentary about this in our, in our world because it's an, it's an important th thing to do. We also talked a little bit about whether we're going to be a descriptive church or a prescriptive church. You know, descriptive in terms of the scriptures and so on to kind of describe the situation at hand or prescriptive in terms of how that implic has implications to us right now. And part of our 
splinter the church is not only about matters of human sexuality, it's about deeper matters of this, how we see church. I also want you to hear that an important part of our conversation here today was about how in the church we have the opportunity to do conflict gracefully, to do Christian conferencing in such a way that we can be a witness to the world. And in many ways, how we do these conflicts uh, matters uh, you know, significantly, almost as much as the outcome that we that we have. We have a lot of things that were shared, and I just I'm very thankful to our to our panelists who were part of our conversation today. But it's a bigger conversation, isn't it? It's a conversation that's taking place in our churches, among among clergy, and among many folks. And certainly, when February of 2019 rolls around, it will become a larger conversation in the world as it becomes evident in the in the news media and so on that uh, this is our conversation in our church. But here's what I want to leave you with, is that the thinking that was mentioned in our conversation, the gospel is bigger than our church, that the gospel is good news, and that the, the good news means that we have hope, always have hope. It was mentioned that the most hopeful plan among the three plans is the one church plan, because it moves forward with a sense of a uh, helping us continue our global witness. And that was part of the focus of this conversation. I invite you to have your own conversation among your friends and colleagues, or perhaps with us here at the United Methodist People podcast by reflecting with us. You can reflect with us and make comments at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash United Methodist podcast. We also have some other things there, videos and so on, a video of uh, of uh, Mark uh, Holland's presentation in Indianapolis, for instance, is there on the Facebook page, as well as our uh, back episodes of the podcast are there. And you can make your comments there, too. Maybe we can have some conversation there on the Facebook page. You can always find us at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. Go there, and you can check out the back episodes. You can sign up for our newsletter and uh, be a part of what we're doing here at United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. I'm a local church pastor who cares deeply about the church, as you do as well, because we want to see us fulfill our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And we can do so, among other things, through great conversation and commentary. We'll see you again soon here on the United Methodist People Podcast. And and, and until then, I just leave you with the good words from John Wesley, which I invite you to take to heart. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People Podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. And always do all the good you can.